Ah, it is what's involved and very, very special guest I'm chatting to you at the moment, uh, Gareth Patterson. Now, you may ask, who, who, who's Gareth Patterson? Well, I'm going to let Gareth tell you who he is. How are you, Gareth? I'm fine, thank you, David. How are you? Exceptionally well. So tell us a little bit about, about Gareth Patterson, because I don't know, and, and I've been trying to figure this out before, I don't know if we've actually met somewhere before, or if I just feel like I know you because of your books, but um, you've certainly been around in the environmental world for, for a couple of years. I have, and that's putting it mildly. Um, I was working out recently, I wrote my first book, sure, it's actually, um, I think this year, it's 31 years ago, it was a a book called Cry for the Lions, and uh, it, people probably best know me or, or in the past knew me best um, for my work with the African lion, and uh, back all those years ago, um, I was a young game ranger researcher in the Tuli Bushlands in Botswana, and um, that's when I first studied lions for the first time, uh, did an observer's study on, on the lion population there. And it was a bit of a foreboding of what was going to come in the future for the African lion. Back then, it was estimated in the 80s, it was estimated that there was perhaps about 250,000 lions in Africa. And uh, today, um, we, we're probably down to about 15 to 20,000. And that first book of mine, Cry for the Lions, was trying to shake people up three decades ago um, to the real plight of the lion um, and, and to, to, to try and stimulate greater protection of the lion. Back in those days, um, you know, uh, I think you know, the conservationists of the day thought, you know, who the hell is this young guy? Lions are fine. They breed prolifically, da, 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 da. Um, and, um, you know, I'm very disappointed to say that there wasn't long-term foresight for the species, because as I said, you know, there's probably only 15 to 20,000 lions around today, and Cry for the Lions was all about that, to demonstrate um, how vulnerable lions are to, <clears throat> to humankind. Uh, that population, when I first started studying them, was uh, was about 60 individuals and within two and a half years uh, that number had halved uh, due to trophy hunting lions being lured out of um, the Botswana side of the reserve into South Africa um, snaring poaching uh, poisoning um, so yeah so that was my first sort of plea for the African lion um, three decades ago Okay, and, the, and I mean, you've, you've, you've written, because it was Cry for the Lions, and you've also done Where the Lions Walk, The Lion's Legacy. Um, there's been a couple, what, about five or six books around the lions, and I, and I think that's where I first came to kind of, like I said, I feel like I know you, um, because um, of reading of those books and, and the way that you described it, and, and I've got a huge love uh, for nature. In fact, in, a, in, a, in another lifetime, um, I used to uh, do a lot of guiding in the, in the Kruger Park, oh, really? so... Um, Something very close to my heart. Um, yeah. And then, then you came out in, when was it? It was around 2008, 2009. Um, and you changed focus a little bit. At least it seemed to me you did. And you, and you wrote a book called The Secret Elephants. Um, what was that about and why the change? Yes, that was, yeah, The Secret Elephants. That was 2009. And um, before then, what I, what I did, um, you know, I wrote a couple of books about 
how um, I worked with the late George Adamson of Born Free fame. And um, after George was uh, murdered um, in Kenya by ivory poachers, um, I rescued and, and relocated his last uh, three lion orphans. They were really, I mean, if Elsa back in the, you know, the 50s and 60s was the, was the first of the three, of the born free lions, uh, these last three um, lions, lion cubs of George's were the, were the last of the three. And that was actually the title of the first book I wrote about the saga of, of how I successfully rehabilitated them back into the wild in the 2D bushlands um, where, where I'd studied lions previously. And then a book followed that um, called With My Soul Monks Lions. Um, and, and then I went on to, um, in the late 90s, to expose for the very first time with the International Fund for Animal Welfare and the UK investigative uh, TV program, The Cook Report, the sordid practice in South Africa of canned lion hunting. Um, in those days, um, there were only, inverted commas, only about 300, 400 lions caught up in this industry in South Africa, whereupon lions are being bred uh, for the trophy hunters' guns, you know, being shot in enclosed areas and everything. Unfortunately, today, you know, this is still continuing. And, um, and you know, there could be as many as, as eight to 12,000 lions caught up in this industry. And it's, and it's very relevant to today with the whole coronavirus situation of zoonosis, animal diseases being passed on to, um, passed on from animals to, to human beings, because uh, unfortunately our, our government in this country allows the export of lion bones. The, the canned lion industry has, has, has gone has gone down because of um, uh, international reaction to it. Airlines won't export trophies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But now the, the lion farmers have, have shifted a bit and now um, are making money with the export of lion bones, uh, which is used uh, to replace the, uh, the, the tiger bone wine um, industry, if you want to call it, in the Far East. Um, and uh, this is a very, very dangerous situation all round, not only because of the welfare of the lions, but the potential of passing on diseases to human beings. But anyway, on to a, a more cheerful light. Yes, back in 2001, I, I moved down uh, to Nice. I never really shifted species. Um, elephants, lions and elephants have always been uh, the key animals that I've been focusing on all these years. Um, Wherever I've worked with lions, there's always been elephants, and I've I've, I've tried my utmost in in my little way to to, to protect them too. So <clears throat> coming down and um, coming down to Nisner and studying these um, elusive and and very endangered Nisner elephants, it it wasn't so much a shift of a species, uh, but just concentrating on them for the time being. Oh, I see. But I mean. Sorry, you, you just the whole concept, and this is something that I hadn't heard of, of, of these guys now wanting to export lion bones. I mean, it is yeah. absolutely insane. And, 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 and just as an aside, I mean, you know, for, for, for somebody who is very conservation-minded like I am, I'm kind of sitting at one on the one hand looking at this coronavirus and going, well, we didn't want to listen, so now we're going to suffer. And, and maybe... Maybe in some weird way, it's good for our environment. Um, I'm not sure about that. What are your thoughts? 
You know, I, I just, you know, I, I, I just worry that as as human beings, we have a very short memory, and we can revert back to uh, very bad habits very quickly. I mean, on the, I am traditionally a person who prefers to see a, a glass half full than half empty, and the the half full side of me is saying that. I, I really do hope that we can learn some some lessons here and really see our, 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 our kind in perspective to the rest of nature. We mustn't see ourselves as being as on the top of the pinnacle of the primate of, you know, of the pyramid, not the primate, the pyramid of, of life and, you know, and, and, and being the the know and see all of everything and actually see ourselves in in our place and that we're really just another species of life and um, I know it's a very old adage um, but uh, the adage of um, nature can survive really happily and abundantly without us but uh, we must realize that we can't we can't survive without nature I mean it it, it provides the air we breathe the water we drink um, and everything to us and and if anything i i hope i really hope that this will be a a humbling experience for humankind and will give us time to actually reflect with our you know our true place in nature we are just one another species you know absolutely what when we come back are we going to continue chatting with uh, gareth it's fascinating and and i mean you know when we get to talking about elephants it is some of the most they are some of the most majestic beasts and uh, if you encounter one ever in the wild in a truly wild place um, that's a very good way to uh, realize what your place is in this world when we come back we'll continue chatting with gareth patterson um, we're chatting in fact about his latest book that he's just released which is called beyond the secret elephants we'll get to that in just a bit right and we're back with uh, gareth uh, talking about about elephants now because uh, you then said, as you said earlier on, you moved to Nisna, um, and you decided to focus more on these the, the Nisna elephants. And I mean, I recall uh, back when was it? Quite a while ago. That this Nisna elephants, it was almost like one of those myths. You know, people talked about them, but nobody had ever seen them. They hadn't been seen for years. Then people were saying um, they were functionally extinct. So, so tell us a bit about your journey writing the Secret Elephants. Yes, yeah, so I, I moved down here in 2001. I first came to um, I first came to Nisna, um by by default actually in 1999 because um, that was during the Canned Lion Saga and um, with uh, the International Fund for Animal Welfare and various other people and 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 myself, we rescued four lions uh, which potentially were going to end up in the canned lion industry, and we set up a um, a hundred hectare um, natural habitat sanctuary, the closest that it could be for those lions living in wild surroundings, um, in in a in a reserve uh, between Mossel Bay and and George, and uh, that was a success, and those lions lived out the entire lives in that sanctuary, and and that was that was a real good project. But I came down here in 1992 to partly set that up, and I I was you know being in the area close to Nisna, I said to my girlfriend at the time, let's go let's go to Nisna while we're while we're here. 
I'd always been intrigued by the the story of the Neisner elephants. Um, I remember, you know, a couple of decades beforehand, reading a marvelous book by a, a, a fantastic uh, former East African game warden called Nick Carter, who studied uh, the Neisner elephants um, in '69 uh, and '70. And I was always intrigued by this, you know, this remnant population of African elephants, the most southern, southerly elephants in, in the entire world that had somehow, you know, escaped total extermination, you know, in this southern part of Africa. And we and so we came to Neisner and um, we were staying at a hotel um, in, in Neisner called Madiba's Tide. And... Uh, the whole link up with what's beyond the secret elephants is about, about this uh, relic hominoid in this area. It, it actually all began there. And we had got to know the manager of the hotel. Um, and um, one morning um, he had given us directions on how to get into the forest. We were taking a drive into the forest. And he, and he said to me, he said to me, Gareth, when he'd read my books and he'd, he'd, he said to me, you know, when this whole canned line thing, when you finish with that, you should come down here and perhaps study these lines. And it was almost like he was reading my mind because I had some vague thoughts that, you know, maybe I should come down here and see what to see for myself because people were describing them. The authorities were describing them as a functionally extinct population. And then he turned around to me and said, you know, because actually there's there's. Well, first of all, he says us locals believe that there are certainly more than one Neisner elephant. He says, but there's actually something even more mysterious <laughs> down here. And uh, he went on to proceed to to tell me about how some German guests of his um, had 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 recently um, asked him, like like my girlfriend Francher at the time, um, um, asked him di- asked him directions. Um, to to go into the forest, and which he duly did, and they went off, and he only saw them the following afternoon, and they were very somber, sitting in the bar in the hotel, and uh, he thought something was wrong here, and he went up to them as a concerned hotel manager and said, "Is everything okay?" And they said, "No, it isn't." And he says, "What's wrong?" And he says, "No, we we followed your directions. We went into the." into the Neisner forest uh, on the road to the Deepala forest station. And we saw three figures standing on the side of the road. And they, then these figures, Julie, they, at first they, they, they thought it was, it was people. And then they saw these three mysterious figures run across the road. And um, they were bipedal beings, upright standing, um, covered in, in hair. And uh, the the hotel manager immediately said, no, 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 what you saw was baboons. I mean, baboons will stand upright for short occasions or whatever. And they actually almost got annoyed with him. These were very well-traveled, well-educated people. And they they replied that, look, you know, we, we, we certainly know what baboons are. We saw a troop as we entered the, as we were on the edge of the forest. And these certainly weren't, these, these weren't, um, baboons, and they were clearly in a state of shock. Um, the manager told me, and uh, they promptly—I think that very day or early the next morning—they just booked out of the hotel and just got out of Neisner. They were in total shock of what they'd seen. Um, when he told us that story, 
immediately came to mind with me was, yeah, also baboon. I mean, I'm a fairly open-minded person, um, but I felt that there must have been a logical explanation to to what they'd seen. Anyway, long story short, we we drove into the forest. First time that I'd ever been in Afro-Montane forest. I mean, totally different to the Savannah country that I'm used to. I'm a I'm a dry bush person, uh, so to to see this incredible green, dense world of 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 forests and and of forests with these lemon-colored shafts of light coming down. And, and into the uh, incredible, incredible fame, mountain famous country. I mean, the famous is actually far thicker than the than the forest, believe it or not. I mean, some of the uh, famous out there prior to the uh, 2018 uh, wildfires in the mountains. I mean, that famous, the old famous, could be 11, 12 foot high. And I. You know, being a, a lion and elephant person, um, the, the elephant side of me, you know, thought, you know, I mean, how can anyone know for certain that there's only one elephant left here? I mean, the indigenous forest alone is over 750 square kilometers. And and the mountain fame boss is, is just practically endless. I mean, it's just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of square kilometers. And um, and as you well know, I mean, even in the Kruger National Park, I mean, you don't need much vegetation to to conceal or to hide a full grown bull elephant, for example. I mean, they yeah. literally they literally are great ghosts, you know, as you know. And I figured in this sort of vegetation, there could be any number of elephants here. And um, and then two years later, I, I, I you know, finishing off the canned line. Story and then after exposing the, a, t- a terrible situation, um, also in the late 90s, was the capture of 30 baby elephants from where I had studied lions in in Botswana in the 2D bushlands. Uh, 30 baby elephants were were captured and and uh, were brought to South Africa and and sold to a um, wild animal trader um, and they were severely beaten terrible cruelty and all the rest of it. And I was in part in, involved in, in exposing that as well. But after after that, yes, I, we came down here in 2001 and very un, unobtrusively and in a, in a totally inadvertent, in 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 what's the word I'm thinking of, non-invasive way, um, started looking at um, studying these nice elephants. And very early on, I must admit, I came down here in May 2001. And in August 2001, I was out one Sunday morning with Francia. And we were walking off off one of the forest trails. And I came across, um, I'd, I'd seen signs of the elephants. And uh, from previous, you know, signs, it's it seemed definitely that there was definitely more than one elephant. I mean, you can tell elephants' ages by the diam- measuring the diameter of the of the of the hind foot, the the footprint, and also by the circumference of dung that gives you height, and height gives you age. And it was clear even then, early days, that there was more than one elephant. But that Sunday morning was extraordinary because I found signs of definitely more than one elephant. And I followed the we followed the the signs and it led back onto the road and there was <clears throat> clear 
clear sign. I mean, you don't have to be an elephant expert, which I'm not, you know. Um, anyone could actually see that this is three different sized elephants walking down. It recently rained, so the, the normally very hard substrate, which is very hard to find elephant spore here because it's so rocky and stony, but the rain had fallen, the ground was moist, and there was the clear imprint of three different sized elephants. Um, one small one, one medium size, and one that looked like it was um, the size of a young bull. Um, young adult bull bulls, their 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 footprints um, are, are are much larger um, than a full grown um, adult cow. So you can dif differentiate between a bull and a and a cow's spore. And we followed this spore for a few kilometers down the down this track. We just followed it um, on foot until it, until they moved into through Feinbos and plantation country until they 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 went into the indigenous forest and then up onto one of their one of their really they're quite hidden these elephant pathways that uh, um, ancient historical pathways that they've been using for hundreds of years and they veered off onto this pathway and disappeared and and so that was uh, that was very very clear to me that uh, at that stage there was at least three elephants around fantastic we are turning to uh, gareth patterson and uh we're going to, we are sort of chatting, but we needed to set up some background here about his latest book, Beyond the Secret Elephants. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit uh, when we come back, where you can get the books, et cetera, et cetera, Garrett's website, those kind of things. Um, but when we come back, I want to continue the story because whilst you were you were busy with um, your, your, your book, The Secret Elephants, you did come across a couple of other things, but at that stage, you didn't want to detract from the elephant story. So when we come back, let's chat about that a bit. Okay, great. Right, we're back and we are chatting to my special guest at this time, Gareth Patterson, author of several books. And and I've got to tell you, one of the things, Gareth, that, that has struck me since I first uh, read your, your, I think your first book was uh, Cry for the Lions. Um, since I read that, it's just the way that you write. Um, you know, it, it kind of takes you there. And, and yes, it is It is a bit of, of a, it's almost a little bit sciencey, but not terribly sciencey, but it, you know, you can almost live um, the experience that you are having through your writings. And I think that's one of the things that attracted me to the books is, is you know, my love for conservation. And then, of course, the good yeah. writing. So many books that you've written, um, all of those are available now online. Am I correct? They are. They are all online. Um, my previous books, um, you know, all those previous books. Are by, I think this is. I had to check last night. I think this is the twelfth twelfth one now. But what is what is fantastic is that all those previous books, the old books, they're all available as ebooks on on Amazon. And um, and very importantly, considering the lockdown situation and all the rest of it at the moment, uh, the new one, Beyond the Secret Elephants, and uh, the the one previously published by my publisher Tracy McDonald, publisher, um, which was my autobiography, my my Lion's Heart. Um, those two are also available um, on Amazon Kindle edition of those. Uh, I'm going to have to get hold of Tracy. I haven't read that one yet, so I'm going to give Tracy a shot and go. Excuse me, I'd like to read that one as well. Um, one of the okay. things. What a 
What a lovely, what a lovely lady is Tracy. I've, 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 so many times I've tried to get her to come on the show because she must have some amazing stories, but she refuses point blank. She says, "Nope, just the authors, <laughs> not her." Okay. Yeah, no, she's absolutely fantastic. What a wonderful publisher she is. Fantastic. Well, Gareth, we were we were we were walking uh, with elephants and the secret elephants uh, just before we went into the break there. Um, but during this time, and this was the lead up, I suppose, to you eventually publishing this new book of yours, Beyond the Secret Elephants, because you started mm. to hear these stories and see a couple of strange, weird and wonderful things. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, you know, I heard, obviously, you know, hearing that story back in 1999 from the hotel manager and then coming here in 2001, you know, I was very focused, obviously, on the elephants. I mean, the last thing on my mind was was a mysterious relic hominoid, you know, existing in these forests. But but these stories started drifting towards me. And um, one of the first times that, you know, these stories about these beings came to me was that I was with a forestry department um, scientist, Johan, in his office one day, and we were going through... Um, samples of um, elephant food types, plants, and we were doing some identification of the of these of these trees and plants and all the rest of it, which he was kindly helping me identify. And then out of the blue, he 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 just said to me, he says, Gareth, with all your you know roaming around the forest and and the mountain famous, have you ever come across a an upright standing um, bipedal furry human-like person. And, um, you know, I was, I was initially a little bit surprised by, by this question and it immediately took me back, you know, to 1999 to what I'd been told by the hotel manager. And I said, I said to him, no, I said, I haven't, but, but why, why do you ask? And he says, no, because it's very strange. He says, because over, over recent time, we've had two very um, separate accounts by our forest workers um, that they have actually seen on different occasions, on two different occasions, such a being. And, um, and he, you know, he, he was very intrigued about this. And then, um, and then another story drifted through to me. I, I live on where, where I'm speaking right now on the edge of the um, a beautiful place on on the right on the edge of the forest and there's there's a few cabins and and cottages here and one day I was I was heading out on foot uh, to the forest to do elephant research and one of my neighbors stopped me and he worked for correctional services and uh, you know I wasn't advertising you know what I was doing it was very low key elephant research but word got got about and and uh, and this man said to me, how's it going with the elephant research? And I told him and he says, but you do know there's something even more mysterious than the elephants out here. And I, and, and I asked him about that. And then he recalled to me how his colleague at work as a very uh, as a teenager, I think it was with his brother um, years and years and years ago, were, were one Sunday morning with the parents in a in a Land Rover. It was like a ritual thing every Sunday um, the two boys with the parents would go for a drive in this Land Rover in the in the mountains and um, as they were driving along 
um, the two boys saw this upright standing um, figure and it moved away and both boys were totally shocked. And um, this is something that I'll get into a little bit later, the shock that sets in when you see one of these beings. And they were speechless and they didn't mention anything to the parents until they got home. And when they got home, they told their parents what they had seen and, and the parents dismissed it as, as no, you, what you saw were, were, were baboons. Now, this is a person who's, you know, born and bred in this area again, certainly knows what a baboon is. And, um, and uh, you know, the boys knew that what they saw weren't baboons. And I later interviewed this man <clears throat> and um, it was an interesting experience because he had faced him and this a brother had faced much ridicule over the years and they've got to the point all these years later that they didn't care about the ridicule any anymore they knew what they had seen and uh, and the man actually told me there's actually you know today we we still speak about it and we 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 see it as a real privilege um to what we're able to 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 have seen and so more and more of these stories started coming forward and then and then I, 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 I met a marvelous um, old lady. She was probably the last of her generation of the original first people of this area, the, the, the San. A marvelous lady called Mrs. Jordan, who lived with her family. Ah, yes, yeah. that was, that's an amazing part. I was actually going to ask you if you would share with us about Mrs. Jordan and, uh, and her son as well. That's right. And one day, I'd, I'd always passed this little settlement um, on the way into the forest, where, where Mrs. Jordan lived, in a in in a very old, um, quaint red-roofed house, which was actually part of the original sort of sidling of the original railway that ran from from 1900 to 1940 from Deepbala Forest Station, where they used to um, transport um, the timber out of the forest down into Nisner Town. It ran for 40 years. And her house was one of the one of the original dwellings along the the tracks of the the road, of the of, of the railway. Sorry, and um, and I'd always wave to the people, and 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 then one Sunday again, it seems to me things always happen on Sunday mornings, and I I I I, I saw this man on the road, and he flagged me down, and he wanted a lift, and his name was Boy, and he was the son. Um, of Mrs. Shorta and we got chatting and he was on his way to see the family and he invited me to meet his family which I, I duly did that Sunday and I got to know Mrs. Jordan, um very well uh, over the years and um, she had spent more than 60 years living in the in the forest and she would chat to me about the elephant and um, she was an absolute mine of information about the forest and the elephants and the creatures. And, and then one day, I don't know how it came about, she, she told me about an encounter that she had had with what she referred to um, as, as, as the O-Tongue. And, um, you know, I'd heard about these mysterious hominoids, but I didn't have a local name. And that was the, the first time that I realized that they had a, a local name. Now, it's very interesting with you know, a tiny grouping of people, a very small grouping of people that who live in the forest their entire lives. Um, they don't really see the Otang as something overly mysterious. Uh, they see them as just another inhabitant of, of, of the forest, like the leopards, like the elephants, like the 
bushbuck and the bush pig, um, which is different to people outside the forest. Um, and Mrs. Jordan told me about an extraordinary sighting that she had many, many years ago when Boy was still a child and his his, his brothers and sisters were, were small. And she was she was living in a, a little cottage at the at the Gona forest station. And one night, it must have been summer because she had her kitchen window open. The children were asleep and she was at a kitchen table doing crochet or knitting. And she had a little dog called Tammy at her feet. And Tammy started growling. And it, it was, I think it must have been about nine, 10 o'clock at night or, or something like that. And, and, um, and, and she, she, got hold of her torch and she shone out of the kitchen window and she couldn't see anything. And she w went back to uh, the kitchen table and her knitting, remembering that she had, she knew all about Otung because the people, they do come across the, the footprints of these beings. Sometimes these beings will dash across the road in front of the headlights of vehicles driving through on the main roads at night. There's, there's a national road that runs through the forest, the national park here. So she knew about these beings and then she sat down and then Tammy started um, growling again and she got up and she shone with her, her torch out, to, out the window towards her vegetable garden and lo and behold, to her astonishment, there was this, this figure, a man-like figure standing by the vegetable garden. She watched it for a while, then it sort of turned to one side as if listening to something. And in a flash, it was gone. And she went back to the table and then she was in shock. She was in shock. And then minutes or uh, quite a few minutes later, then she heard the rumbling of a truck or a pickup or something, a bucky coming along in front of the cottage. And, and then she realized that obviously the Otung had heard this a long time before she had. And, um, and, 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 and she almost like scared herself by almost dared herself because then she she actually went to her uh, kitchen door and opened it a little bit and shone around with the torch and she didn't see anything but she smelled this very very pungent smell there's an african term i think for it what she described i can't remember what it is but basically it means she described what she smelled as, as, as being like a, a worked horse or a sweaty horse, a very, very pungent smell. And yeah. then, and she, obviously she didn't sleep well that night. And in the morning, she was half thinking that she dreamt this whole episode. And before the children woke up at just at sunrise, she, 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 she went outside and walked up to the vegetable patch. And lo and behold, there was, these footprints there, and then she realised that she certainly hadn't imagined this whole thing. Fantastic! And and we, we, when we come back, okay, we're going to wrap up with Gareth when we come back. But um, I I am fascinated because you've heard a lot of these stories. So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about that and wrap it up because the big question, of course, that I'd like to ask Gareth is, have you seen one? When we come back, we'll discuss that. It is what's involved, and we are chatting with Gareth Patterson about uh, his latest book, Beyond the Secret Elephants. Um, we're talking about, and I, I always 
because I'm so used to saying orangutan, um, I, mm. I, I'm never sure if I can pronounce it correctly. Is it an otang? Otang. It's otang, and I think it does o-tang. actually. O-tang. I think it actually does derive from 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 the word orangutan because it's like the closest that the people could of a point of reference of what these beings look like. So I think it is like a derivative of the term, of the name orangutan. So it's otang, yeah. Otang, yeah. Okay, because, I mean, for for years and years, I mean, ever since I can remember, we've heard about, uh, uh, in North America, for example, the Bigfoot, or where was the other one uh, in the Himalayas, the Yeti. Um, There's the um, one in Sumatra as well. Um, so people have seen all over the world these, you mentioned that, that you call them relict hominids. Um, yeah. But, I mean, you know, initially somebody would say, listen, um, I'm not sure what they're feeding you there, Nasna, but you've you, you got to be crazy. But, I mean, mm. Jane Goodall, George Schaller, and also Professor Jeff Muldrum, they've all publicly stated that they are open-minded about the possible existence of beings like these. And to me, that is absolutely fascinating that in a world as technologically advanced as ours, there's still so much we don't actually know. Exactly. And I mean, that's the whole point. And, and you know, and like you say, I mean, Jane Goodall is very open. George Schaller, Jeff Meldrum, our very own world-renowned paleontologist, Dr. Robert um, Brain, um, uh, a Dr. Ian Redman, who worked with uh, Diane Fossey, um, world-renowned primatologist who very kindly wrote the foreword um, to Beyond the Secret Elephants. More and more people are open-minded. The thing is, is that humankind has actually always shared, shared the, the landscape historically over hundreds of thousands of years with other, we're, we're discovering more and more today with other species of hominoids. Uh, the interesting thing is, is why perhaps, um, you know, we think for the first time in our existence, we're not still sh- sharing the landscape with these beings. So so we are much more a- aware of the situation. And like you said, I mean, it, it, it makes us understand that we don't know um, everything about what exists. There, there are mysteries out there. There are places that we have not explored. I mean, we only got to think that the mountain gorilla was only discovered, so-called discovered um, by Westerners. I mean, known by the local people, just like the Otung have been known by local people for for centuries here. The mountain gorilla was only discovered in uh, 1902, the Akapi, the year before. And then closer to home, obviously the coelacanth, which was thought to have been extinct think about 65 million years ago was was discovered um, um, here in South Africa in 1938. There was a new species of orangutan that Ian Redmond told me about or mentioned, I think it was last year or 2018. I think it's called the Tupanuli in Sumatra again, um, which was, uh, this new species was discovered um, just recently, 800 individuals. And um, and so the list goes on. New species of monkeys are being discovered in the Amazon on a yearly basis. So the frightening thing is, is that we're probably, um, there's species going extinct before we can even identify them scientifically. You know, so, you know, that is, that's, 
an extraordinary and, and an extremely worrying situation as well. So yeah, it's it's all very very interesting. Yeah, sorry, so I Gareth, got off my thread there. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I'm I'm finding this fascinating. But Gareth, then you know, was it a tough decision to 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 bring out beyond the secret elephants? Because, and I've got to tell you, if if, if you're listening to this, um, you've got to get. The book, it is, you can actually read it as a standalone book. Um, I would recommend that you read Secret Elephants as well, just to get a bit of an idea. But Beyond the Secret Elephants is a standalone book. And it's not just about the Otang, okay? Yeah. There's a lot about the elephants in there. And I don't want to spoil too much of the book because it would be quite easy for me to sit here and chat to you for hours, Gareth. Um, but, you know, how, what, what sort of a difficult choice was it to go, okay, I've, I've, I've heard these stories um, I'm going to sort of do some research and, and write a book about it. Was it difficult? It 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 was it was difficult in the sense that um, I mean, Beyond the Secret Elephants is obviously the sequel of the first one, the, the Secret Elephants. But the Secret Elephants book and writing that actually taught me a lesson. People were saying to me, "No, no, you mustn't write a book about the Nisner elephants because before you know it, there's going to be hundreds of people marching all over the forest trying to forest." find the elephants and all this kind of thing. And I knew, I learned a lesson from that because I knew that that wouldn't occur because the elephants are so elusive. Um, uh, they are so well hidden. No one can set out um, to, to track down Neisner elephants with any hope of actually finding them. I mean, there's so few people who with any sort of guarantee could actually do that. And it's probably only my, my two colleagues at Sand Parks, the forest guards, Wilfred and, and, and Carl, um, who have been out there for three decades. Um, but even them, or even myself, knowing of, of secret places of the elephants like I do, um, you know, there's no guarantees that even the three of us can find these elephants. These, that was demonstrated very briefly. I just tell the story. We were making a film <clears throat> back in 2008, a documentary with uh, Animal Planet called, ironically, The Search for the Nisner Elephant. And um, the filmmaker, a friend of mine, Mark Van Beek, he spent two weeks filming with me and then he spent two weeks solid with the guards trying to track down Nisner elephants to film um, the elephants or an elephant or whatever they could get. And they spent two weeks out there and they got close to uh, one bull, but couldn't film film him. And then on the very, very last day of filming, of, of, I mean, it was up, the, you know, it was budgeted for one month and that was it. And on the very last day, as the sun was going down, Mark said, and they're on the spore of this elephant. And Mark said, okay, guys, we just got to go back to the vehicle and accept the fact we're not going to get the footage. They got into the vehicle, they were driving away, the light was beautiful. Mark is, a, is such an artist when it comes to, to filming and he was looking at the light and he just said to forest guard Wilfred, he said, look at this light, imagine if an elephant came out here. And then seconds later, Wilfred tapped Mark on his knee and said, look, there he is. And on this overgrown path um, road, there was this elephant and it was just standing there and Mark got out of the vehicle, put his sandbag on the on the bonnet of the vehicle, and he filmed six minutes of this elephant. The elephant just stayed there. I mean, the elephant was well aware that it was there, and um, and and those six minutes, I mean, it was you know absolutely extraordinary. And that elephant had deliberately 
shown itself. It could have walked one, two, three steps and disappeared, but it stayed there. And so, but yeah. that, and that, and and they wouldn't have got that footage if the elephant hadn't showed it. So that's how exclusive. Anyway, long story short, I knew by writing about the nice elephants, I was not endangering them um, to people and exposures to people. And so that taught me a lesson when it came to the otang. The otang are perhaps even more um, elusive. Uh, than the elephants themselves. And so by writing about them, in part, I wrote, I wrote because I had so many eyewitness reports, and these, these people have come forward to me even, even after the publication of the book. The book only came out in January, and I have, I have people coming forward to me now. They, they are relieved to be able to tell their eyewitness accounts of what they have seen because they've kept quiet about this for years and years and years, not telling spouses or family or anything about it. Because of the fear of ridicule, they've kept it to themselves. I've had an 80-year-old lady contact me um, a few weeks ago after reading Beyond the Secret Elephant, and she told me about her sighting 60 years ago, more than 60 years ago, which she had never told anyone about. Which, uh, which took place at the uh, Bainscliffe Pass all those years ago when she, when she was a teenager or whatever. And so I wrote this book partly to give validation, a vindication really, of you know, four people who have seen it, have gone through the shock of seeing these beings and have kept it to themselves all the time. I, 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 I can see now that sightings are actually not that uncommon. Um, and... Um, and, and, and so that's partly why I wrote the book. So answering your question, I'm, I'm glad I wrote it. Yes, it was challenging, but I, I, had, I had no doubt that I'm not going to be endangering them. I'm not exposing them to the wrong side of, of, of people. And at the same time, I've given um, vindication, validation uh, for eyewitnesses. And this, this, I think, is ongoing. I mean, I'm getting from time to time, every week, I'm, someone's coming forward telling me of their amazing eyewitness accounts, which are so detailed that they can't be fabricated, you know, and the, dis and, uh, the consistency of the almost post-traumatic stress disorder that, that people go through seeing something that, according to science, doesn't exist. And it is a shocking experience. My very first um, sighting took place again on a Sunday morning. Sorry to sound like a tech record, <laughs> but I was wondering... I was I was moving back from a, a marvelous place that I don't go back to anymore because it's the elephant's place. It's a place I call the secret place of the elephants, where they drink from a, a spring in the in the mountainsides, where this is incredible little spring with very very wonderful water. Elephants are connoisseurs of water, and they routinely go there to drink from this little spring. And I was walking back, and it was a clear day. I was clear-minded, beautiful day. Everything. Great, last thing on my mind, strange hominoids out there, no, nothing like that on my mind. I was heading home and I was walking along and I think you, you will know what I'm talking about, being a bush person. We, we know when, or well, you don't even have to be a bush person. You can be in a restaurant and turn around. You know when someone yeah. is looking at you. You feel Absolutely. the stare, yes, you know. Indeed. Yeah. And I felt as if something was looking at me and I, I turned around, carried on walking. It was almost like as if when I'm in the bush and, and you've got a large predator is actually looking at you, you don't stop and stare at it because they can perceive that as a threat. Rather, just keep on walking and keep it in the side of your eye. 
And that's what I did that morning. I felt something looking at me. I turned and I saw just showing itself, just emerging a little bit, just behind it. There was a stand of pine trees. And this being probably about five foot, I, I think about five foot three or four or whatever, was just leaning slightly out and, and looking at me. And I saw it. And um, for some reason, I sensed it was female. I can't put a finger on why. Um, I sensed the curiosity of this being. I carried on walking for, I think, about a kilometer or a kilometer and a half. I'd kept it for those few seconds as much as possible inside of my vision and then just carried on walking. And then, then I turned around after about a kilometer or so. I turned around, couldn't see anything. And then I literally, with my rucksack, I, I literally just sunk to the ground. And that's when the, sh the first initial shock hit me. And I felt as if I was in some sort of fog. I was in some sort of bubble. You know, it was a beautiful day, but I felt in a fog, and I just put my hands over my over my eyes. I just, I mean, it was total shock. And when that lifted a bit, then I started to 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 walk back to where, where I'd left the vehicle, and then later on, back at home, I I recounted this to to my girlfriend at the time, Francia, and I told her about it. And then during the writing of the Secret Elephants, I contacted her, and I said because I can't remember her reaction. And then she described what, you know, what I was saying, how I was almost like doubting what I'd seen. And, and I kept on talking about it. And then it was almost I resigned myself one day to say, yes, you, you saw what you saw. And it was a reddit hominoid. That is absolutely amazing. And I can just imagine if you see something like that. I mean, I know the experience of being in the bush and suddenly it's almost as though an elephant materializes um, a couple of paces away from you. Um, and I know that kind of thing, but at least you have a frame of reference. Your brain can go, ah, elephant. Okay, good. Um, yeah. but, but something like this, um, mm. and, and it's not the first time you saw them either. You did see them again. I did. So that was uh, the first sighting, I think, was July. I think it was around about July, August 2002. And then in 2005, I was... I was I was out doing work, doing research on a road that is like a, a, a forest track that is like a cul-de-sac because there's only one way in and one way out. And I was I was walking I was walking along and I had quite tall fanbos to on my left hand side and, and plantations I think to the right on this track. And again, I wasn't thinking, I was, I was focusing on elephants and looking for signs of the elephant. And then suddenly I heard this movement actually very close to me, uh, you know, like three, four meters away from me. And I just saw this, this figure, um, very broad shoulders, it had its back to me. It was, it was leaping away from me um, into, into the fame boss. Um, very broad, I mean, like a bodybuilder's build, you know, a, a, a slim waist, broad shoulders, and it, and, and it dashed, dashed away. In retrospect, um, I tend to think that this was a, um, a sub-adult. Um, today, I'd like to almost say that it was almost mischievous in the sense that it probably sent... Uh, me coming along from a, or saw me coming along the road from a long distance away and um, and and then just leapt away at the last moment 
And then um, it was 2009, uh, um, I was out, I was going to check a, a, a trail camera of mine and um, again, not even thinking about these beings. And that was an extraordinary experience because um, I was under the impression that they are relatively uh, quite small or, or sort of human height, more, more, more like the one I saw, you know, five and a half feet or whatever. And um, I was on the way to the trail camera and I just heard a big disturbance amongst them young eucalyptus and bane bottle, whatever it was. And uh, and I just saw this really tall figure, I've been six and a half, seven foot tall, running away from left to right. I was on the edge of a, of a gorge, a very, very deep gorge. And it was dashing away in panic, in absolute panic. Uh, I mean, that was startling enough, but it would have been even more startling if it had just stood and looked at me. I mean, that would have been terrifying. You don't want to see these beings. I mean, it is, it is, it is shocking. And this being just ran from left to right and crashing through. I mean, it was so noisy. It was crashing through at high speed towards the gorge and, and it, it disappeared. And I, the last sighting that I've had, I've heard them and, and had things happen and found tree structures that they build and all this sort of stuff consequently. But the last sighting that I had, I think it was 2017, that was very, very intriguing because I wasn't alone, be it with um, the elephants or anything in the forest in the fame boss. I love it when I'm with people and people hear or see things before I do. And what I've done for a number of years here, because of people reading The Secret Elephants, um, I've started um, a, um, a sort of mini expedition, a half, a, well, often it's a full day, um, whereupon I, I take people out into the forest and, and introduce them. Not a search for the elephants. It's, 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 a, it's an introduction into the elephant's mysterious world. Um, and it's called the Secret Elephant's Forest Experience. And in 2017, I was with, it's normally a group of four, but this was a group, I think, about six or seven people were in a combi-type bus. And we stopped at a place to look down this deep gorge uh, actually, not now I think about it, not that far away from where I had the sighting of the tall one. And people, and they were very well educated um, people, um, well traveled people. They, they'd, each one of the people had read The Secret Elephant, and, and we've had a fantastic time in the forest in the Bainbox. And we were about half an hour away from where I live. And we stopped at this high point and we're looking down at this pool and a lady had um, binoculars and she was looking down at the pool as well. And then suddenly she, she said to me, Gareth, Gareth, quite urgently, she says, what is that? And she was pointing down towards the pool. And uh, we all looked, we all looked down and, and there, there we saw for a few seconds, this upright walking figure. Its body was about three quarters to us and it was heading off to um, a stony, rocky area. It seemed like there were caves. There are caves there. And then when it disappeared, then I just had these astonished faces of these people looking at me, my guests looking at me, and they said, Gareth, what on, what, what on earth was that? And, and I said to them, I said, you've all read The Secret Elephants. Now, in The Secret Elephants, I'd actually mentioned in a couple of pages, just briefly, because I didn't want to detract from the elephants in that book. 
I'd mentioned very briefly about the legend of the Otung or the existence and the local people knowing about it. And I said, I said to him, you read that section? And they said, I said, that's what you, that's what you saw. And then again, the shock set in. And this was a very cheerful group of people. We'd had a fantastic time out there. When we got back into that vehicle, that half an hour drive to where they're going to drop me off at where I live, no one spoke. And it was only, the silence was only broken was when we got to my gate and the people said goodbye and they drove away. Otherwise, it was total silence. And that is the shock that people go through um, when they see such a, such a being. And, and this, is, this is duplicated around the world where these relic hominoids are seen, whether it's Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Yeti, Oran, Pendic, or whatever. People go into, into a shock. Well, I, I can imagine, and I think it's that, that's partly because science says they don't exist, partly because of, I think, the arrogance of human beings. We'd like to think that we're the only upright walking uh, hominids around, but uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know, a lot of people, a lot of people are probably going to go, no, and I believe that it's entirely possible, um, with your track record having seen these beings, um, I see no reason to doubt anything you say. Um, my wish, though, is that I don't know. It's like, do we want to know more about them or do we just want to let them alone? Because they must already, wherever they are in the world, already suffering from this human encroachment in, into their territories and environments. Maybe we just want to kind of leave them alone. I don't know. What's your feeling there? I think, I think, I think, I think what we've got to do is for their own sake, have some sort of recognition of, of their existence. And with that, as you very rightly said, um, we need to, with, with the impact of humankind, with the recognition of their existence, then we have the responsibility of stewardship of them. Uh, what I mean by stewardship is, is, you know, they're a type of people, you know, and we're encroaching on their ha habitat, just like we're, you know, encroaching on everything else. Um, and we need to, you know, recognize them and, 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 and try and stop as much of the encroachment. And it's very interesting. You've got um, in Bhutan, in the uh, Himalayas, that tiny country, they have known about what, what, what we call the Yeti. Uh, they've known about it for, for, for centuries. And incredible foresightedness of the government of Bhutan in, in the sense that several years ago, they actually, because the people, the local people, and this is a very important thing, when local people tell me about the existence of something, I, could, I take it pretty seriously, because if anyone knows, it's the, the local people who have been there forever. And the local people believe in this relic commonoid there, and the government, with, with great foresight, actually created a um, um, a reserve, a national park, which is um, formed, created partly for the for the protection and and the steward, not stewardship, but the custodianship or the recognition of these beings in that that part of the world. These relic hominoids, I mean, th th there's reports of them, sightings of them. Even Australia, it's known as the Yowie in South America. It's on every continent on Earth, apart from Antarctica. It's 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 absolutely fascinating, Gareth. We're going to have to we're going to have to say goodbye to you at this time. But uh, 
thank you so much for, for taking the time out, for chatting to us. Um, the books are available on Amazon. Uh, you can go to Gareth's website as well, which is Gareth Patterson. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N, GarethPatterson.com. And uh, you can find out more. Gareth, um, once again, thank you. It, it's been great. We need to talk some more, I think. Where to next for you as we say goodbye? What's next for Gareth? Well, firstly, thank, thank you very much, David. It's been great speaking to you. Um, what I'm, what I'm, I'm going to be continuing um, with, my, with, with my work um, here, um, partly on the elephants, always keeping an eye open for them. Um, you know, keeping as much as I can and an eye over them, and that you know that nothing detrimental is impacting on on them, but also on the Otung, but in a very very non-invasive way. You know, I I have got nothing to prove to anyone. If people want to believe, um, then that's great. If they don't, then that's their prerogative. I'm not there to prove anything. Nothing can take away what I've seen and what the other people, what many other people have seen. But what I, you know, the way that I'm approaching it from now on is to know more about that. I'm not, I'm not rushing out there to try and get sightings. I'm not putting trail cameras out there to to try and get. They avoid trail cameras anyhow. They know they 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 they're very aware. No one has actually got a picture of be it the Sasquatch, Bigfoot, or whatever with a trail camera. They they know their environment so well. They know when something is strange or whatever in their environment. But I want to go about it in a very non-intrusive, uh, non-invasive way and just look at the, the behavioral ecology of these animals and just of these beings, just, just try to get to know more about, um, just like I would any other species, you know, knowing about their range, uh, their occurrence, um, uh, their, 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 what they feed on. All these kind of things, just to just to learn um, more about them. I mean, it's just a, it's just extraordinary that they exist, and um, and just to learn more about them, um, but being very very sensitive to them at the at the same time, like I have been with the with the nice elephants. Wonderful stuff, Gareth. Thank you again so much. Um, yeah, once this whole pandemic thing, it's it's one of those things that's kind of been on my bucket list for a while is to go and mm-hmm. check out the forests around Nas. And I would certainly love to come and do that and uh, maybe sit down and have a cup of coffee or something. So uh, until then and uh, until we're out of this, uh, thank you again and all the best to you, Gareth. Well, you'd be very welcome. Anytime you'd like to come down, I can I can hear that you're a kindred spirit in that regard. So it'd be great to show you around. And thanks for having me on the show. Wonderful stuff. There we go. That's uh, Gareth Patterson that uh, we were chatting to. Fascinating. Once again, uh, all of those books, and I think they're 12 in total, are available on Amazon. Gareth Patterson. Um, but uh, this latest one, uh, the, the Secret Elephants and Beyond the Secret Elephants, uh, definitely, definitely well worth a read.